for those of you that want to know like what I do, I'm always curious when I see people get up and teach. It's like, I want to know, a lot of you have just introduced to, to me. How many of you have never heard me speak before? Okay, so, wow, all right, a lot of you. Clearly, I'm not as cool as I thought I was. Um, but so the, re the way that I got started, we actually are on staff at, I'm, a, I'm actually a pastor at Bethel Church, but we run an organization called Moral Revolution, which is really based in writing curriculum on healthy sexuality for churches. Um, I talk about sex a lot. I've, I've had sex at least four times, confirmed cases of having sex. Um, but, you know, we talk a lot about it and we write curriculums. And in fact, we wrote a curriculum for public schools that we're really hoping will get passed uh, for sex ed about healthy choices. But that's kind of my other life. And then what happened was early on when we moved to Bethel, I had had this heart to start writing uh, studies, Bible studies for women. And I am not that was not my like number one grace. I'll talk about a, a little bit today about my story, but um, I wrote this study called Radical Growth, a guidebook to growing a vibrant life. And this was a devotional that I'd put together and it was about 300, 500 words a day with some action steps. And I had written this and I thought to myself one day, you know what, you know, have you ever had those bright ideas after you have the cup of coffee in the morning where you're like, I could absolutely do that. I had one of those moments after, um, I, I like to say coffee plus the Holy Spirit equals momentum, right? And so I decided one day, um, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the Bible study, my devotional, and I'll just get on Facebook and every morning I'll walk all of my, my community through this devotional. I figured that would be a good idea. I'm a mom. I had four kids under the age of five at that point, and I figured I had a hard time uh, doing a study. And it, part of it was for me was um, I needed a study that was um, first of all, it could only be five to eight minutes a day because that was about the time that my kids would not kill themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like five to eight minutes, I could still do CPR. And so that was, you know, part of it. But then also I needed, I needed a study where I didn't have a ton of homework because I already kind of felt behind on life. And so when it came to spiritual things, I would go into doing these studies and I realized I always felt behind. I wasn't very academic. And then I would, I would end up getting a babysitter, which cost me, when you have four kids, it, it's insane, the price to get a babysitter. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Can I see your PhD? Because I'm paying you for all of this, right? So I would end up spending $100 just to go to Bible study to pay another $40 or $50 to the Bible study and to feel behind on life. And so I realized that wasn't my season. Now I get there are seasons when we can do that and we can, we can leave our house and we can do in-depth study, but that wasn't my season. And I realized I was avoiding growing in my spiritual life because I didn't have the time and I felt embarrassed that I couldn't get to it. So I wrote this study for a woman that was like me, who was a working mother who only had about five to eight minutes a day. I needed it to be a complete thought. I couldn't have it be like, hey, in week three, because I didn't remember what I had for dinner last night. I couldn't remember what, I, what week three was. And I needed to not have homework and I needed it to be uplifting and positive because I already felt like things were intense in my life. So I decided that on Facebook, I would throw this up on Facebook and see who would join me. And I didn't ask my husband because I knew he would say no, that it wasn't a good idea. I mean, anybody else like that? I'll ask him when it happens. And so I threw it up on Facebook and within like an hour, like a hundred of my friends joined me on this thing. And I'm thinking, this is exciting, but this is probably not good. I, I thought maybe 30 to 50 people would join me on this study. 
So by the end of the day, my husband was at work, Ben comes home, and now I have 500 people that have joined that are, I'm going to get up every morning, and I'm going to record this live video on my Facebook of this study. Well, I start to realize I'm completely out of control, that this is not a good plan. And so I sheepishly told him that night, hey, here's the deal. Like, I thought I'd put my study online, and I thought maybe 50 people would join. We have like 500 people that have joined this. And so he's like, okay, well, what's your plan? I'm like, well, my plan is that all the kids, I'm going to get them busy and cleaned and all that. And then I'm going to have like 10, 15 minutes to do this. He's like, okay, so you expect our kids, four kids under the age of five, to quietly play every morning. He's like, that would be a miracle of God anyway. But the fact that you would expect to lead these people, he's like, yeah, you're out of control. I need to help you. And so... He decided to kind of come up with a plan. And by the next morning I woke up, we had a thousand people signed up for this online thing, which was awesome, but horrible. And so we ended up, uh, by the time we started Radical Growth in September, we had 6,000 people that joined from around the world to do this study with me. And so we ended up borrowing some equipment and we recorded it and we threw it up online and it was completely free. It was a gift to the community and it was just me sitting in with my cup of coffee at my kitchen table every morning sharing five to eight minutes about the story of Radical Growth, how to grow a vibrant life. So we decided, I realized at that moment, wait a minute, there's something, there's a need in the body of Christ, like in our communities where people need this. They need, to, they want to grow, but they feel very overwhelmed. How do I grow a spiritual life when I also have bills to pay and people to feed and, you know, sex to be had, you know, whatever it is. Like I, I have all this and how am I going to do this? And then what I also found was that people didn't know where to start. It was like, the Bible's a huge book, and they didn't know, like, all of us have all started in, in, in January in Genesis, and you've read Genesis over and over and over, but you haven't gotten any further because it's a huge book, and by the time you hit Leviticus, you just want to die, and so it, it's like, never mind, I'll do this later, and so... So I found that I wasn't alone, that people didn't know where to start. They didn't know what the big deals were to God. They kind of felt like they, they knew they wanted to grow. They knew it was important, but they didn't know how. And so we ended up um, saying, okay, let's do this again. So we did, our next study was I Do Hard Things, which is what we're doing today. And at that point, uh, and that was the following January, we took about 15,000 people with us through that study. And we did the exact same thing. And then we realized, wow, there's something happening again in our communities. So then we ended up um, doing a study called The Good Stuff. And it actually, we rebranded it. It used to be Keep Calm, Finish Strong. But now it's the guidebook to finishing strong. And uh, we ended up doing this. We took a whole bunch, more thousand people through it. And we decided um, that Facebook was tricky because Facebook changes their... I don't know, I, this is kind of technical, but actually what Facebook has allowed, they, they consistently change. So initially you could invite thousands of people to join the study and then they limited it to 500. And then they wouldn't allow you to like have people in your group and then transfer it to the, nether, uh, the next event. They wouldn't allow it. So you have to start all over inviting this, the same people. And then the algorithm of it, which is a whole technical thing, they, they would only show it to certain people and, and the other people had to find. And it just got really messy. And I realized that we, we were losing our ability to reach people because of Facebook, which sounds weird, but that's kind of how it works. So we decided that we would do a platform, 
And Bethel Music at that point had put together this platform that they were practicing and letting people try out. And they came to us and said, listen, we're willing to put together a platform. It, we are going to absorb $20,000 cost and we'll do it to you for free if you're willing to let us practice on you. And I'm like, practice away. All of this is yours. And so they began, they put it up together and we decided to call it Truth to table, kind of like farm to, for, farm to fork, truth to table, which was just a place where we would throw our studies up online and we would put all of that up there and we would throw all of our studies and begin to, you know, create this community. And so then we, uh, at that January, I launched a study called Eat, Pray, Hustle. Now, I didn't even get a chance to talk about each of these, but Eat, Pray, Hustle was a study called Dream Chasing God's Way. And what I found was the church we're, we're so confused about chasing our dreams that we're not sure if we should chase hers or chase theirs or we're not sure what it is. And I, I kind of feel like there's a lot of like go after God and go after your call and be passionate about where he's taking you. But we're not really good at helping people understand exactly what's on their life. Like, what am I called to do? And I kind of need that to be laid out for me. And so what I did was I talked about the five areas that look like a God dream, like what are the characteristics of a God dream? But then the second week, I talk about the five specific ways to know what the dream of God is for your life. Like practical, uncomplicated, this is what it actually looks like and you'll figure it out. Then I talk about the dream killers. What are the five areas that we kill dreams? And we end up going, being frustrated about why we can't really live out the dream of God in our lives. And then I talk about the last week is about, um, because once you're running after your dream, sometimes it's all about finding the dream, but then it's never about cultivating it. So I talk about finding your, your dream tribe and how to run with those people and figuring out how to make it grow. And, and so that was Eat, Pray, Hustle is on that. So we ended up putting that together. And then this last January, uh, we ended up changing the platform. Bethel Music ended up saying, we're not going to go that direction. So we switched to the entire platform because we have nothing more to do. And we um, did something called, I wrote a study called Soul Food. Um, and this is a guidebook to a satisfied soul. And what I did was we took the four meals of the Bible, uh, apples and trees, bread and wine, fish and loaves, milk and honey. And we, we pull apart those, that food and we talk about how God met a practical hunger, but he also met a spiritual hunger. And what is that hunger? How many of you just got really hungry right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we pull apart each week and we talk about how that is. And we had people from all over that did groups and they would actually eat that food for the week and with their, with their groups and all that. So... Truth the Table became a platform where we have, I think we have about uh, six, maybe seven studies on, on Truth the Table. I also did a, a study called Moms of Men with Lisa Bevere, where we, uh, she has four old, older sons, men, and I have boys. And so we have eight boys all together, which is insane. This is why we, we said, that's why we use the word crap is because we have eight boys and, um, and so we actually, I went, flew up to her, her house in Colorado and we sat at, at her kitchen table and we filmed four, or 12, 12 different teachings on raising boys and we'll continue to do that. So Truth the Table, what we ended up doing was instead of trying to sell each of those things, we just created a, a membership where you can have access to all of it. At one point, there's always a free study. No matter when you get on Truth the Table, we will always have a 20-day study that you can follow along. But for those of you that want more, uh, we end up using that income to fund uh, more filming and more at getting the books together. We don't have outside funding. I don't have a 
wealthy parent. Um, and so we end up taking that, that income and developing more courses. And, and what we just are launching, which I'll talk about more tonight, is we're launching e-courses, which I'm very, very excited about. And so there's kind of like this basic membership where it's like Truth the Table, it's our community. We have a private Facebook group that you join. But then we also have something called an empowerment plan, which is kind of a leadership plan for those that want more development. And we're just about to launch something called Prophetic Personalities, which talks about the four distinct ways we hear God and what's your prophetic way that you hear God. And I'll talk more about that tonight. That was a really, really long conversation. So what it is, is there, I brought books. These books back there, you don't need to go through the study with these books. They can be separate, but you also can get on Truth the Table and not have to have a book either because that was very important to me is I wanted to make sure that nobody felt like, if you ever bought a book and then they're like, yeah, you have to buy the study and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like now I have this book, but I don't have the study. I, I, again, I was trying to uncomplicate this for anybody. And so you can get on, you don't have to have a book. You can have your journal and your Bible and enjoy it. Or you can grab a book for my overachievers and you can actually get developed in that. So we bring product uh, because it's way more expensive for you to buy it online because we have a, a, an agreement with Bethel store that they distribute it. So if I bring it, I can get it to you a lot cheaper. But if, we, if it's at home, then it goes through them and then they pay for all of that. So that's that. Is anybody having a birthday today? Are you April fooling me? Is your birthday on April Fool's? Oh my gosh, you, get, you need something. Will somebody, will you, will you run this back? Let's give her a couple of these. You need a couple books. And I'm going to give you... Um, this is Becoming a Voice as well, and it's a CD on finding your voice and strengthening your voice. Are there two birthdays in the room? <gasps> is it yours too? Can you give her these two? Give her those two. And there you go. And um, there's, yeah, this is the one I want to give her the CD and the two books back there. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, pull out your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Okay, so last night... Last night, we talked about, for those of you that were not here, we talked about doing hard things. The very first thing we must do for breakthrough in our lives is we have to take responsibility. Wherever we are, we have to stop right there and say, hey, I am where I am. This is real in my life. And we have to take responsibility. So again, the goal in all of this is that we end up, at the end of it all, we have permission to dream. We get from doing hard things and hard things overcoming and overwhelming us to becoming to to getting to a place where we're free and we can dream and we can we can grow in God and the things that were once dead are now alive again. But this is what I'm going to teach you is how we climb out of a pit in our life. And what I want to teach you is that this is a cycle that will work in any season of your life. So you'll be able to reference this, uh, you know, in five years from now, if you hit a trial or a tribulation or something where you're like, this is really hard, you'll be able to actually reference this and this will work every single time. And we've seen this in thousands of people's lives around the world. This works if you put it to practice because it is the word of God and the word of God does not return void. And so there's power in it. So today I want to talk about, um, last night was I could do hard things or I do hard things. And then today I want to talk about I can do all things. I want to talk about your, your uh, grace to do all things. Some of you have your books and you're like, are we, do we need them? The books are, 
you don't have to go through them as I teach. They're really to help empower you so when you leave this place, you'll have 20 days to get what I'm teaching you in depth into your life. And so the leaders of this community, I, I just love it. They wanted to invest in you that you'd be able to pull this forward and have it at reference at all times. So don't worry so much about the book. Just realize that you have everything I'm teaching right now you have in your hands and you can reference it later. So Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. This is the amplified version, the woman's version, because it says way more. It says, I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I love this thought. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him. I am ready. Come on, bring it. I'm ready for anything. Come on, I'm ready. Go ahead. Go ahead, enemy. Go ahead. Right? I'm ready for anything. I am, I'm going to be equal to anything that's coming at me because Christ is living within me and he's empowering me in any situation. There is nothing that shocks God. There is nothing that overwhelms God. There is nothing that he is, he is consulting the angels about because he's never faced something like this before and he's very concerned. God is fully confident that what he has started in you, he will be faithful to complete. And you are not too far gone, and you are not too old, and you are not too messed up, and your family is not too crazy for God to use you. The only person that we need to get that through is you. God is not confused about your life. God is not concerned about your life. He is fully passionate about making you into the person that he's called you to be. And he's fully fascinated with loving you. He loves you. He's for you. My kids, I love them. I constantly look at my little boys and I say, I want to eat you. You know, I just want to eat your face. And they're like, that's scary, mom. And I'm like, well, when you're a mom, you'll understand it. But I want to eat you. Because I love you so much. I want to consume everything about you. I love you. Those buns are mine. <laughs> so I love this thought. The first thing is I can do all things when I understand that God gets more glory out of me being a success than me being a failure. I can do all things when I understand that God gets more glory out of me being a success than me being a failure. This is very important in our lives, is that God is trying to get you on a path of success. Now, some of us, even hearing the word success makes us go, I don't, what does that mean? Is that finances? Does that mean I need to be a certain way? I'm not going to be a certain way? No, 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 stop. Success is you living as the person God created you to be. That's it. Right? I love what Mike Bickle says. He says, me being loved by God and me loving God makes me a success. I love that. I'm going to say that again. You, me, me being loved by God and loving God back makes me a success. That is the picture of success for your life. That's what you created. But God is 
wants to push you out of failure and into success. I remember this as a, as a young woman. At 17, I was a preacher's kid. My dad traveled eight months out of the year, and my sister and I and my mom would travel with him six months out of the year. I grew up on the road, and um, I was a classic minister's kid, and I was, I would like to say, I was a roller coaster kid, which meant when I was in, in spiritual environments, I, I felt and acted very spiritual. But when I was at school, I wanted to be cool, and that was kind of how it was. I was, like I said last night, I had learning disabilities, so I was very, very social. I was, I, my, my goal was to be popular so that nobody would know what was happening on the inside of me. And so I moved, we moved to a new place out of high school. I grew up in Lake Tahoe and went to high school in LA. And then we moved up to Northern California. And we moved up there. We went to a new school as a sophomore. And some guys had made it their objective to get my sister and my attention. They pursued us. They teepeed our house every single weekend and they wanted to hang out with us. And so eventually we gave them the time of day and we started to hang out with these guys. And so one night I had gone to church to a service and then the guys had picked, came to pick my sister and I up to go to a party that night. And so when we got into the backseat of this car, uh, the music was playing really loud and we had done this consistently throughout the weekends and so it wasn't anything different. But as I'm sitting in the backseat of this car, I begin, my heart begins to pound and I begin to feel and since God's speaking to me in the backseat of this car as we're listening to R&B music and it's loud and, it, and we're in the backseat of this Mustang convertible, I'm sitting back there and the music is blaring and all of a sudden I hear God say to me, what are you doing? Why are you living like this? You are called to more than this. And I remember feeling like, I can't believe he's talking to me right now. And as he begins to speak to me, I'm so overcome with the reality of what he's saying to me, I just awkwardly shout out, can you turn the music down? I didn't have a plan. I didn't even know I was going to say that. I just knew I needed to say something. And so the guy in the front turns the music down, and I said this. Again, I had not practiced this. I did not have this rehearsed, so I was just awkward. And I, I shouted out, I have a call of God on my life. It was so awkward. There was like no piano player in the back. Like, that's right, sweetheart. Like, no pastor. Like, you know, nothing. Just awkward. And when I said it, as I said it, I realized what I was doing. And I, I felt myself get emotional. I began to cry because I knew I was, like my two lives were coming together. The two worlds that I was living was becoming one. And I was overcome with emotion, which happens often when we begin to live. Uh, we stop living as two different people. We start living as one. It, something happens and there's a grace that hits our life. And, you know, oftentimes we think, well, I'll live it fully when I'm, I'm convinced. And what you don't understand is you cannot calculate grace. You can only calculate decisions, but you cannot calculate what it looks like to live fully in one place and be the same person in every environment. You have no idea what that's like. And so you don't understand the peace that goes along with that when you just choose this is who I'm going to be. So I started to weep and kind of get this emotional moment. And I look over at my sister and I'm thinking, she's probably like, what are you doing? You're crazy. But as I look over her, she's weep, She's crying. So I'm like, something is happening in this car. Mind you, the guys in the front have said nothing. <laughs> and so as I said, 
and then I started to feel this compassion for these guys. And so I said this. I said, um, you're welcome to come with me if you like. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve God. And I knew I was, I was making a line in the sand. Like, this is what I was going to do. And as I'm crying and I've said this and no one's saying a word, I realized that the guys who were driving the car just took us home. They didn't even ask. So I look out and I realize, oh, I'm in front of my house. I should probably get out here. And so my sister and I, we get out and um, we said goodbye, which actually we never ended up hanging out with those guys again. We never talked to them again. We get out of the car and we walk into our house and we kneel down by one of our beds and we say this out loud. I said, God, I'm not much. I'm young. I'm 17. I'm a girl, which in my world... Quite honestly, I hadn't seen a lot of women do a lot of things. So that seemed more like a liability than a benefit. And I have no special gifts or graces on my life. I I don't have this evident thing that I'm giving you. But if you can use anyone, you can use me. And I remember saying that out loud to him. And have you ever said a prayer where you wish that the heavens opened because you've really said it with your whole heart and you wish that, you know, like Jacob's ladder and angels and, but nothing, nothing happened that night. I never saw anything spiritual, nothing. I remember turning out the light and going to bed that night, but I learned a valuable lesson that night. I learned that it doesn't matter what you experience physically. If you mean it with your heart and you say it with your mouth, it's as good as done and heaven begins to move on your behalf. And I learned that night that the Spirit of God was trying to get a hold of my life. And I had to partner with him, but that God didn't want me to sit in the backseat of a car as a failure for the rest of my life. He was trying to get me out of the backseat and into the front seat where he was leading my life. And I was under his leadership because his leadership is perfect. And I could, re- I could rest and, and enjoy being a success with him. And I think it's so important to understand this. God is not setting you up so that you can fail so he can teach you a lesson. Because we kind of get this way where we're like, well, you know, it just, well, God's trying to teach you. You know, you can't do it in your own strength. Well, God's trying to teach you, you know, that this is what it's going to take. No, stop it. God's not a mean parent. He is not trying to teach us through failure. He actually has no problem allowing us to succeed. He has no problem encouraging us. When my kids were learning to walk, I wasn't like, come here, baby. Come here, come here, Hudson. And as Hudson stumbled, I'm like, why don't you try that again, son? Like, what kind of sick person would I be? He's walking to be doing his very best. And I'm like, come on, baby. Mommy loves you. And then he'd take one step, and I was like, he's walking. Like, I'm excited. Why? Because I wanted him to succeed. I wanted him to grow. I wanted him to develop. That was the heart of a godly, healthy parent. And God is the healthiest parent you'll ever have. He's never going to teach us. Now, failure, we can learn lessons from failure, but he'll never lead us into failure to teach us. It's very important that we get our theology around that. That is not how God teaches us. No matter what you were taught, that's not how God teaches us. And if it's always about, listen, If we, the enemy would love nothing more than you to be confused about God's intention toward you. The enemy would love nothing more than to slowly slip in that God's intention toward you is that he's a little mean. He's a little controlling. He's a little angry. He's a little overbearing. He would love nothing more than, of course, God is love, but he's also, well, he's just an ego 
maniac, right? And, and really, he's distorting our ability to receive from God that God, his, his only motive towards us is good. He is not concerned. I mean, there is nothing you can do to get his attention. You have his attention. Like, we, any part of our hearts that want to perform to get God to be excited about our life or success, we need to get rid of that. Because we will not enjoy our life if we feel like somehow we're getting his attention by our acts. It's not true. So we can do all things when we understand that God gets more glory to us being a success than us being a failure. Your journey to succeed will often lead you to do whatever God says regardless of the cost. And God is waiting to be glorified. 1 Peter 4.11 says if anyone speaks, they should do it. They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. This is very important. We get so caught up in, is this what God wants me to do? And should I marry this person? And should I take this job? And should I go over here? And should I do that? And, and I would just suggest that God is not so concerned on what we are doing, but how we are doing it. I really think this is important. We get so caught up in, and should I do this? And what, what about this? And what about, and God's like, would you just do something? You won't even do anything. You're so scared that you're going to be out of my will that you won't even do anything towards my will. So do something, but realize it's the motive in which we do it that is, God, is most important to God. It's not how we're doing it. The Bible says whatever you do, do unto the glory of God. Whatever. How you do it is more important than what you do. This is very important, and we've got to get our, our heads around that. Should you have another kid? I don't know. Can you afford another kid? Do you want another kid? Well, should I change jobs? Do you want to change jobs? Should I marry this person? Do you think they'll be a good person to be married to? You see, the moment we start, we start taking our power and putting it all on God, listen, if it's like, hey, should I marry this person? God told me to marry this person. Then the moment you get in an argument and you feel completely out of control, who are you going to blame? God, God was, why'd you make me marry this person? God, why'd you put me? It's an immature conclusion. God allows us to make choices and he partners with us in the choice to keep us powerful so that way we don't blame everything on him, but we go, God, you're going to help lead me. And if we're surrendered to him, he'll never hide his will from us, but he will not lead us into things and then have us feel powerless because he led us into something. We've got to realize that God leaves a lot up to us. That's, that is very good. I just want you to know that is some good preaching. See, the moment we actually start to realize that our decisions are within our, our, our power is the moment we stay powerful in the decision. And then we say, God, show me, lead me in the middle of this decision. There are certain things right now that you're blaming on God and you are the responsible one. So take it back, walk it through and let God help, let God train you and equip you in the moment. So whatever we do is up to the glory of God. Our success will lead to his glory. This is very important. God wants Havilah to be successful so that he gets the glory. You know, some of us, your advertisement for Christianity is horrible. You're the most miserable person in the room. Why would anybody want to follow Christ? Right? 
well, you know, God's just leading me. Well, you're, you know, you're, you're, you, you have no, you've never had financial freedom. You've never had spiritual freedom. You've never had emotional healing. You're at a place of being miserable and you're, but I follow Christ. Well, horrible. Why would I want to follow the Christ? You are the, you need, we have to realize our lives are an advertisement for God. How we parent is an advertisement for God. How we lead our marriage is an advertisement for God. How we take care of ourselves. How we receive things. It's, you know, it, it really is God had no problem allowing our lives to be, to be the advertisement for the kingdom of God. And so we've got to, I think sometimes we've got to realize like we, we, the joy in which we enjoy our lives speaks to people. And so God wants me. Now, success is often defined. It's not always defined in what we have and what we do. And, but, you know, I don't think God's trying to keep us from being successful. But, it, but he doesn't want us to take the glory. We were never created to hold the glory of God. The glory belongs to him. Have you ever seen someone who holds a little glory? Can we just hashtag Kardashian? You know, like if they're whole, is it, we are not physically made to hold glory. We're not made to hold people's attention. We're made to direct attention to God and enjoy the fact that, hey, my success actually comes from the God of the universe. We were created to give the glory to him. And the reason is, is because man's glory on us or attention will destroy us. We weren't created to live with it. We were created to give it. And so it's very important that glorifying God is what we were created to do and will lead us to ultimate fulfillment. We need to experience God's enjoyment. I remember there was one point when I had, I was on staff and I knew that God was calling me to write Bible studies and to teach and to travel and preach around the world, and which is what we do. We travel two to three times a month. We travel around the world, which is thrilling and exciting and equally as hard um, because I, I really do like to be in my pajamas and I love TV. So those are all elements that are hard. But, but what I realized is that there was a point when the Lord said to me, Havilah, I want you to take yourself more seriously because I take you very seriously. And there was a point in my life where I was acting like somehow I wasn't that important or that I somehow couldn't be a voice or that somehow I was just deemed to this area and I couldn't go over here. And God was saying, actually, whatever you're willing to grow, as long as the glory goes to me, I'll help you grow it. You want to write books? I'll help you write a book. You want to put it online? I'll help you put it online. If you put the glory towards me, I'll help you. I'll let it grow. I'll let it continue to be what you want it to be. And I just think it's very exciting when we begin to see God like that. So the second thing is I can do all things because God always responds to my faith and not just my failures. I can do all things because God always responds to faith and not just my failures. And this is very important. We can do all things when we redefine our failures. Now, there are two types of failures that we experience in life. And let me say this, how you respond to your own personal failures will be your story of success or failure. You need a plan for failure. Now, that sounds horrible. How exciting. Write that down. But, you know, here's the truth. There are two types of failures that we experience, and the first one is unforeseen failure. 
It's things that we didn't expect to happen. And again, failure might be the wrong word. It might be unforeseen uh, weakness or something has happened in our lives, but something happens that we didn't expect the marriage to fail. We didn't expect the job to be gone. We didn't expect the ministry to fold. We didn't expect our kids to not be with us. We, whatever it is, it's unforeseen and it takes our breath away and it oftentimes can leave us feeling shell-shocked by what's happened. And so we, when we have unforeseen failure, it takes us off guard. And oftentimes it can take the breath out of us. I would like to say this. You, part of us being spiritually healthy is being kind to the little girl inside of us. Part of us being willing to grow and not being so closed off is being willing to say, hey, Havala, it's okay. It's okay to not know how to do this. It's okay to not know where you're going. It's okay to not know how to be here. And giving grace to who I am as a person instead of saying, well, you're, or you've been ordained for 15 years and you're an author and you speak and you travel and, you know, you were raised in a godly home. You've been given a lot and to whom much is given, much is required. And come on, no, no. Instead, for me to go, you know what? Let's take a step way back in my life. I've never, ever been here before. I've never been to Anchorage, Alaska to speak to 500 women. I've never had a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 6-year-old, a 4-year-old. I've never been married for 13 years. I've never been 39. I've never had a million dollars of expenses in my house right now because each child requires $250,000 to raise. Let's not even think about that. I've never, I've never had these opportunities and I've never had these weaknesses. I've never been so tired in my life, right? I've also never dealt with the stakes being so high. And so instead of expecting myself to be an expert, kindness is saying, Havala, it's okay to learn at this moment. And sometimes we're so scared of failure that we're afraid. And it, the reason is, is because we've defined failure as the end. Instead of it being a, a place of learning and growing, instead of it being a place where we're cultivating a different thing within us, we've decided that success looks this way and failure looks this way and I need to avoid failure at all costs. Some of us, we're going to face unforeseen failure. When we lost our job, I did not expect to lose our job. I said this last night, but I was at a place where we had four kids. I had I actually was on bed rest with all the last three of our kids for 10 weeks. So I had, was on bed rest for another 10 weeks with our last son, Beckham, who ended up going in the NICU for 10 days. And so all of a sudden, I have four kids under the age of five. Um, and, and, and my fourth C-section, my kids in the NICU, I get home, I go to do my first errand, and as I go to the, get do errands, I look over at Grayson, my third son, and he has red bumps all around his mouth. I take all of four kids to the emergency room. When we get there, they, they say, yes, you have hand, foot, and mouth disease. You need to be in your house for 10 more days quarantined. So now I, I have not only been in bed for 10 weeks, I was in the hospital for 10 days. Now I'm at home for 10 days with four kids, and I am done. I'm overwhelmed. I don't feel good. I am, I'm nursing. I'm, my, my stomach has been cut open four times. I'm in recovery, 
And now I am like, okay, I'm going to get it together now. We've had four kids. I'm done. Uh, my, I had my tubes cut tight and burned. And I'm ready to start. Because we get pregnant like this. Like my husband looks at me and we get pregnant. It's like, you want to have a baby? It's like we don't hug. We don't kiss. We don't go in jacuzzis anymore together. Like this is how it is, you know? And so I don't want any more babies. And so we are done. I'm like, this is going to be my season of success. I'm done having kids. I'm going to get whole. I'm going to, this is it. We're going to go forward. And I get a call from my husband and he says, honey, I have some really hard news. Now I knew that there might be a possibility, but I had, I assumed that it wouldn't. And if anyone was, if anyone was in California in 2005, you would understand that we had a huge economic issue where people had overpurchased and, uh, Half of our community, our church, was in real estate, and when the real estate market dropped out, our half of our income had fell out. We had just moved our church into a building, a $7 million building we had just purchased and built, and so it was the perfect storm, and when we got there, um, I, it, it was just the perfect storm, and so my husband called me and said, honey, I'm so sorry, but um, it looks like they're going to have to let us go, and here I am, I'll never forget, I'm wearing my pregnancy pants because I just had a baby. I'm holding Becca, my infant, who is still, I think, 38, 38 weeks because we had had him early or 39 weeks. All my kids are around. Everyone is in diapers. We're living in a house we had just purchased that year that was a block away from the church, our first home as an adult I had ever owned. And I, he goes, do you want to talk about it? I said, I don't want to talk about it. I need to go. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you're like, I actually have nothing to say to anybody right now? And I hung up the phone, and I would love to say that I was really spiritual at that point. I was a, a pastor and ordained and a leader as a teaching pastor at our church. We had, at that point, five services on a weekend, and we had almost a church of 2,000. So you can imagine this is kind of what our life was like, and I had a full-blown adult tantrum. Have you ever had an adult tantrum before? And I ran into my bedroom, and I fell on my bed without my arms, and I began to cry. And I remember laying the infant down next to me, my son, and I was like, I don't care anymore. Like, I remember, like, putting, like, yes, kids, you can eat chocolate and watch HBO. I'm going to lose it. And... <laughs> So I'm laying in my bedroom, and my phone is blowing up for my family because they care, but I'm like, I'm too busy to pick up my phone because I'm trying to have a tantrum, and I don't want to be talked out of this, and I don't want to be preached out of this or prayed out of it. I want to lose it, and I don't want to be accountable for that. And so my phone is off, and I'm crying, and I'm talking to God, and you have to understand, part of my anger and, and frustration was I told God, you know, from the age of 17, I've said yes to you. Like, I can't think of very many times I've ever said no to you, God. At 20, 21, 22, 23, I would travel. We had my sister and I would clean houses five days a week. We'd clean two houses a day. We'd take that money, and we would spend it on gas money to preach into youth groups and churches up and down the California coast, and we'd travel every weekend and prophesy and preach and pray, and we'd get home on a Monday and slick our hair back and go clean houses, these huge mansions in, in Sacramento area. And so we would do this, and I remember at that point going into our church, and I would answer phones, and I would, um, I planned events, and I was an intern director, and then eventually became the worship pastor for six years, and then ended up uh, becoming a teaching pastor. And so I had given my life to building this church, and I can't remember saying no to God. In fact, there was even one point 
when, uh, when I was 19, I had a pastor come. His name was Chris Valentin, and he said, we want you to come to a little church called Bethel. We want to make you a pastor, and we want you to come and start this, this community. And I remember saying, no, God told me to stay here and sow into my parents building this church, and I want to build this church. It's a good thing Bethel never turned into anything. And so as I... I'm living here, I'm laying on my bed, and here I am now, 35 years old, four kids in five years, a husband and a house we just purchased, and I tell God, what do you want me to do? I can't give the baby back. I, I mean, what do you want me to do? Nurse my entire family to feed them? I can't go get another job. I can't be a surrogate, just tied my, my tubes, like I was smart. <laughs> like, what am I gonna do? And I remember telling God, I never said no to you, why are you doing this to me? Why are you, be, why are you doing this to me? And I finally said to God, what do you want me to do? Like I have four kids under the age of five, I can't go get a job, I can't do anything, what do you want me to do? And I remember God saying to me this, he said, I want you to make chicken. I said, what? He said, I want you to make chicken. And I remember sarcastically saying to him, you make chicken. And then he said, I did. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, he said, I want you to get up and I want you to clean up your kids, and I want you to light your candles, and I want you to get ready for Ben to come home. I want you to make chicken. Now, I make some really, really good chicken. My mouth just watered. That's how good my chicken is. <laughs> and I said, great. I have nothing else. What else am I going to do? It's interesting. What else am I going to do? I'm just, I might as well obey you. Super full of faith. And um, so I remember going in the living room, turning, on, turning off HBO, and changing all of my kids' diapers and giving them a bath and cleaning up my house and lighting my candles and putting on my Frank Sinatra and doing my warm chicken dinner. And my husband walks in the room and as he gets home from work and he goes, hey, you know, as every husband does, sheepishly comes in and he's like, you want to talk? And, um, you know, he'd been married long enough to know that he should ask this twice because every good husband must ask twice, Right. <laughs> Like in a girl home, you have to ask twice. Like, how you doing? Good. Are you sure? No, not really. And then we kind of divulge. With a man, it's like, how you doing? Good. Okay, what's next? Like, they, that's just how it all works, right? So he asked me, are you sure? And I said, um, no, I actually would rather just have dinner, and then we can talk about it later. And he's like, I think he was relieved because he was like, I don't actually want to have you lose it on me yet. And so... So we sat and we had chicken and we ate and we talked and we didn't even talk about us losing our job. We just talked about life, gave the boys a bath and read them a story and went, got, that night after everyone was in bed, we sat on the couch and we began to talk about our future. And what's so interesting about that moment was the moment I decided to not to do exactly what God told me to do and not try to figure it out, and not try to make it happen, and not try to, like what I wanted to do was lose it, take my kids, go home to my mom, have my mom cook dinner for me. I wanted to like totally check out. But, but at that moment when I decided to say, God, this isn't failure, 
this is a new season and you're going to help me in this. And I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to do exactly what you want me to do. It was like everything changed. And I always have said this ever since that moment, I never lost hope. I don't know what happened. Nothing changed. I didn't get a phone call or money in the mail. It just, nothing changed. It still was hard. It still was work. I still had to do the hard things well, but I could do the hard things well because at that moment I had to redefine. It wasn't failure. It was a change of a season. It wasn't failure. Success was coming, but I needed to change the course and where I was going in order for this to happen. I would never have written this study if I hadn't had that moment. And it was changing my direction. It was changing where I was. I was super comfortable. I was super comfortable. I bought a house a block away from the church. I never, I wanted to live and die at that church. But God knew this is where I was taking you, Havilah. And God took me to Bethel 20 years later and became a pastor on staff. So what's interesting is we have unforeseen failure. And some of you are at that place where you're like, what do you want me to do, God? I'm at a place where I didn't expect. You need to make chicken. I'll give you the recipe. You need to, you need to do exactly what God's called you to do and not allow the enemy to define you as a failure. But actually allow God to say, I'm going to give you a step that might seem confusing on the outside. It may not make sense completely to everybody around you, but do the exact thing I've asked you to do. Go home and change your laundry and clean up your house and do the next thing. Go to work with a good attitude and start again because I'm going to change what I need to change and this is what I'm doing within you. The second type of failure that we face is the one we don't often like to talk about, but it's the premeditated failure. And this is the type of failure where we knew what we were going to do and we did it and we did it anyway. We chose to disobey God. We chose, you know, some of us, we are doing hard things because we disobeyed God. Come on. It's not to like put shame. I'm just, I don't need to get out in the open. Like some of us are like, I'm dealing with hard things. Well, you're dealing with hard things because you spent money you didn't have and now you have bills you need to pay and you're overwhelmed. So it's premeditated and oftentimes we won't, we don't like it because we're afraid that if we admit that we actually decided to do something that was disobedient or dishonoring to God or we, we lived in a place of, of fear and we made decisions out of fear, then somehow God won't, he wants us to live out the consequences so that way we'll be better kids and we'll figure it out and then we'll come back and we'll clean ourselves up to get to God. And so we've got to be willing to admit the premeditated failure. It's interesting and I don't have time to get into all of this, but even King David, David had a massive failure. David was, was supposed to be on a battlefield, but instead he was on a balcony looking at another man's wife get naked and bathe herself. And instead of closing his eyes or changing his view, he sends for her, brings her to him, and scholars would say that he, he raped her that night. Now, what's interesting about this is we may, we may not ever know if he, if he fully raped her, but he definitely raped her with his power. And who he was, he took advantage of this woman. And Bathsheba, and then not only that, tries to clean up his failure by having her husband killed and lying about it. And then a prophet comes in and says, I know it. David, I know what happened. And kind of exposes it all. And David does the right thing. He tears his clothing and he weeps and he repents and... That son dies, but he, he gets back up again and he continues. And what's so interesting about David's life 
is that God did not, like the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart and God allowed those words to be written in his word that we would read it thousands of years later about David and David's failure was in the book, but man, a lot of David's success was there and David was still called a man after God's own heart even though he had premeditated failure and horrific experience, God did not define his life as failure. And some of us, we've experienced horrific failure. But God does not define your entire story as failure. It was a moment, but really we've got to figure out that God does not see our whole life as just one moment. He sees our whole life as moments, the story, the movement of our life. The movement of our life is what's important to God. Some of us, I love us, but for all my perfectionists in the room, you will monitor your spiritual life day to day. Don't do that. Stop doing that. I would monitor my life as a year. How did I do this year? Am I moving closer to where God's called me to? If I monitored my parenting on a day-to-day basis, I would give up. Come on. But if I monitor, like, hey, it's been two years and my kids are happy, healthy, fed. They are still smiling at me. Life is good. Our ability to handle our own failure is a vital part to our spiritual life and another sign of significant development. The way you treat your own failures will have a significant effect on your future success. So here's what happens. On this whole process of climbing out of hard things, doing hard things well, getting to a place where we have permission to dream, the first thing we have to do is we have to forgive ourselves. Now, I can't take us all through that process. There are some of you that are going to find forgiveness today, and you're going to be like, I'm free. Some of you, it's a process. You're going to need to get someone to help you. You're going to have to go to counseling. You're going to have to have a pastor meet with you because you're in a process of forgiving, and there's been a lot of years of unforgiveness, and you haven't fully got free. And some of you are holding yourself accountable for for, um, premeditated failure, and you haven't let yourself off the hook. I just want you to know all failure is God, God came for all of it, so we just need to relax a little bit. Now, when we forgive ourselves of what's happening in our lives, the hard things, some of you, you've had some trials and tribulations hit you and you went into adult tantrum stage and you've been hiding in that and you've been laying on your bed without your arms and you've been weeping and you're out, you are completely checked out. And so part of this whole I do hard things is God's trying to wake you up. Stop it. Stop being in that stage where you just think I'm right here and I'm responsible for everything and I'm a failure and I'm a victim. And no, no, stop. Pull yourself up out of that. Say, God, help me get out of that and begin to forgive. Now, when you begin to forgive others and yourself, deep inside, I forgive myself or I forgive others for what they've done to me. I forgive those, the people that let me go when I had four kids and there's nothing I could do and they were, they were men and here I was, a woman, and I felt like they didn't even acknowledge that and I never got a going away party and no one ever even acknowledged that I was leaving. I can say that without any offense. I don't have any offense because I've forgiven them for being stupid. No, I've forgiven them. (laughs) It was funny. It's just a joke. (laughs) I've forgiven them. And when you forgive yourself and others for the story, you begin to get hopeful. You actually can't have hope for your life unless you forgive. There's just no way. Hope comes from forgiveness. 
Hope is birthed out of forgiveness, an ability to say, I forgive myself for the things I thought I could do or I couldn't do, or the things I tried and it didn't work, or the things I did out of the wrong motive. And all of a sudden, this becomes a cycle. So when I've lost hope, I always go back to what I need to forgive. Anytime I lose hope in my life about my parenting, oh my gosh, my kids are, well, it's going to be a disaster. No, no, I got to go back to forgiving. Did I do something that was premeditated? I yelled at him when I wanted to yell. I did something when I shouldn't have done it. Or was it just a failure? I didn't even know. I missed your field trip. I had no idea there was a field trip. I didn't even know you waited for me for an hour. I didn't know. I have to forgive myself, let myself off the hook, receive the grace to not be an expert in my season. And when I begin to give myself grace, listen, when we give other people grace, the thing that releases hope is empathy. Come on. So when I'm in a mode where I'm like, I am so overwhelmed. And how many of you are a grandma in the room that you've raised some healthy kids? So if I was to tell my friend here, this is what's going on. I have four kids. And she looks at me and she goes, you're going to make it. Your kids are going to make it. They're not going to, they can eat mac and cheese three nights a week. They're going to be fine. And if she begins to speak that to me and I begin to let myself off the hook, guess what happens? I begin to have hope. Because she's being empathetic to me, and instead of being like, well, you know, have you ever thought about doing this and giving me another list of things to do, when she just says, I know you're doing the best you can. Do you know what it feels like when someone looks at you and says, you're doing the best you can. I'm so proud of you. I'm, you're, so, you're doing the best you can. Look at you. Your mom was a knucklehead, and look at you. <laughs> the fact that you even care. The fact, that's, honestly, there are so many times in my life where I'll go to a, a, a friend or a leader or a counselor and I'll say, what do I do? And they go, the fact that you're even asking the question tells me you're more aware than most people. The fact that you're even saying, am I okay? Am I doing it right? Is this how I'm supposed to be living? The fact that you're even asking that question tells me that you're a very healthy person and that you're going to be Okay. And so this is what the cycle in my life, when I lack hope, I have to ask myself, am I giving myself grace? Am I forgiving others? Am I, am I letting other people, am I getting, taking, letting them off the hook? And is this cycle happening in my life? See, once hope begins, once forgiveness happens, hope begins to come. And so this is important. The third area is this. I can do all things when I believe that God who is living in me is greater than the devil fighting against me. The God, God, listen, this is important. I don't have time to talk on all of this. This is in the good stuff study about the enemy, but I will say this. The devil is not another God. It's not God and the devil warring against each other, which is kind of how we felt in the church oftentimes. It is not God and the devil, two gods warring against each other. There is God and there is the devil who is an angel with a God complex. Okay. The devil is a created being and is not all powerful. His eternal, uh, his eternal, eternal p- placement is already set. He will live forever damned in hell. Amen. And he's trying to take as many people as he can with him because that's, it still makes him feel powerful, although he has lost all power. He doesn't have any other power. You, if you are saved, you are under the authority of Jesus Christ and the enemy is under your feet. He has no power. He cannot, listen, the enemy cannot read your mind. This is important. I used to think the enemy could read my thoughts. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear that this, the ability to read your thoughts is a God attribute. And the enemy is not God, so he has no ability to read your thoughts. The only thing the enemy can read is your words. 
and your words give him opportunity. And the enemy is an opportunist. That's all he is. And so he's an opportunist. And what we give him, the power of our words are the power that he receives. And he begins to set up opportunities for us to feel powerless. Okay? So when I begin to realize, listen, this is very important. You are not, the enemy, you might be struggling, but the Bible says that when you've received Christ, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, new things have come, which means everything that wasn't working now works correctly and properly. Okay, so here's, here's the issue. If I've received Christ fully in my heart, in my life, and you've received Christ fully, and you're not missing anything, then why do you have problems? Because some of you have real problems. I have real problems. Anybody else? Okay, so what happened? I thought I received Christ fully, and I can't say it. We can pray more Holy Spirit, but the truth is he comes in his fullness. We just want manifestation of his grace in, in the room or in our lives. But the truth is we've received everything. This is very important. Like I'm giving you a theology to understand how to live your life in a more powerful way. Okay, so we need to remind ourselves of this because we will miss this. And in the church, it gets very messy. I don't know why it's so complicated, but somehow this has become a very complicated issue. And I want us to be very clear. The Bible says you've been given a new heart. You've been given a new mind. You have the mind of Christ. Everything that wasn't available to you is now available. You had a deflated spirit. It was like a deflated balloon. And when the spirit of God came in and lived inside of you, if you've invited him to come partner with you, listen, you now are inflated. Everything is working perfectly. You have a new desire. You don't want to sin. You don't want to do things that destroy you. You don't want to be around things that destroy you. Now, you have problems. This is why. Because you, you are a soul. And your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. Your mind are your thoughts. Your emotions are your feelings. And your will is your determinations and your decisions. The Bible says your mind must be renewed Romans chapter 7 says your mind must be renewed, which means there's a couple factors. We must set our thoughts on higher things. We must tell our mind what to think. This is very interesting. You have, your mind goes, your brain has a bunch of thoughts, but your mind is what you decide to give power to. Your brain is stupid. Your brain will say all kinds of things. But there's, it doesn't mean that's who you are. It, it doesn't mean just because you've thought something doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. This is important because we will, we will absolutely penalize ourselves. Well, why did I even think that? You know, I'm a married woman. Why would I even think of myself doing that? No, no, it's just a stupid thought. But it's not who you are. And some of that's just habit and some of that's demonic. But whatever it is, it's not who you are. So your mind must be renewed. Some of you, your mind, you've had a mind of your own for a long time and you've thought about your life a certain way and you were trained a certain way. And so your main job this year is you're going to have to learn to renew your mind. That's your number one job this year. How do you renew your thoughts? You can renew your thoughts, but you're going to have to go to work. Just like you exercise your body, you're going to have to exercise your thoughts. Now, this is very important. I just met with a, a woman who has a gift a neurological therapy, which means that she has an ability to, she, she studied how the brain works, how it operates, and how it affects us. What you say about yourself is what you believe about yourself, whether you feel it or not. This is fascinating. 
which means I could be walking through, and this is what she talked about. She went on a whole course. She has her three different degrees in this. I could walk around, and if I say, I love you, Havala, it doesn't matter if I believe it. If I say it, the brain takes it as fact. This is so interesting. So if I just say, I love you, Havala, I love you, Havala, I love you, Havala, it doesn't matter if I'm like, I love you, oh, you're so amazing, and I have a whole bunch of facts. The brain hears what I'm saying and receives it as truth and will eventually change. That's just how it works. Isn't that fascinating? I love being a mom. If I say that over and over, I love being a mom. And inside I'm like, this is horrible. But if I say it, listen, and it can't be a double negative. It can't say like, I, I think I love being a mom or I, you know, I, I will love being a mom. No, no, you have to say it as a declaration. That's how your brain receives it. You have to actually say it. I am a Christ follower. I love following Christ. I love his word. I love worshiping. I love learning about God. I, see what I mean? And you begin to say those things and your whole body will begin to respond to it and it becomes truth. I just think that's so fascinating. When you feel so stupid and you do things that you're like, oh, why did I do that? I love you, Havala. I love you, Havala. I love you, Havala. Begin to receive that. You got to say that over yourself. It's very powerful. So this is a whole other teaching. But secondly is this. Your emotions are your feelings. Your feelings have no moral value. That means if you feel anger or you feel fear or you feel oh, whatever it is, there's no moral value to it. God's not judging you for how you feel. Your feelings give you insight to what's going on on in the inside of you. We'll talk more about this this afternoon. Your will is your determinations and decisions. Your will is, cannot be renewed. Your will must be surrendered. So I have to surrender. I'm a strong-willed person. I have to surrender my will. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meekness means strength under control. Okay? So, so what, what happens is my problems come from the thoughts I'm having, the feelings that I'm giving too much authority over and giving... Listen, the Bible says you can be angry and sin not, which means you can have emotions and feelings, but if we don't actually put validity to it, there's no moral value to it, okay? So some of you are being led by your emotions because you're trying to give too much weight to that. And then your, your will is your determinations and your decisions, and we'll talk a whole bunch more about that this afternoon because I've got a lot of thoughts about that. But, but this is what happens, is that the enemy will lie to us and say something is wrong with us because we're struggling, you're not, you, what you receive from Christ isn't broken. You don't need to receive Christ again. We end up going to the altar. Well, I'm going to receive Christ again because something's not working. I'm going to receive Christ again because I'm obviously didn't get what I needed. No, no, stop. You got everything you needed. It's just that your soul is dominating your life right now. And what you need is your spirit to dominate, which means you need your spirit to grow, to begin to dominate your life, to where all of a sudden what your spirit, listen, spirit talks to spirit. Is God a spirit? Yes, that means your soul isn't talking to God. Your spirit is talking to God. And so if your spirit isn't dominant, then you won't hear what God is saying because your thoughts will dominate, your emotions will dominate, your will will dominate, and you won't have a clear access to what God is saying. So we've got to learn. Does that make sense? So the process of our struggle is not that the enemy is overcoming us. We blame too much on the enemy. It's not the enemy. The enemy has no authority over you. You are a daughter of God. You're covered in the blood of Jesus. There's no authority that he has over you. He's not doing, listen, well, the devil's in my, you know, he took my gas. I don't think 
that the devil has time to siphon gas out of your gas tank. The devil is, he's up doing other things. So when I begin to realize that I'm very powerful and that the God who's living within me is way stronger than what the enemy is trying, I start to live in peace and I start to have a ton of hope. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is living within you. It's power that has been at your disposable, disposal Excuse me, 24 hours a day. It's a force to be reckoned with. The devil will always try to get you to believe that you are still fighting for victory, but the truth is you are fighting from victory. You are not fighting for victory. The victory is already set. It's about receiving the gift of victory. It's not about trying to find it. Nothing will ever harm your soul again. If you, if you trust in Christ. 1 John 4, uh, 5, 4, uh, it says that Christ came to overcome the world, and that's part of our gift. The fourth and final thing I want to say is this. I can do all things, or I can do hard things, when I believe that no weapon formed against me will prosper. No weapon formed against me will prosper. What are the, what are the weapons of the enemy these are the, the basic two that I think take our communities out and our, most of us out consistently. And the first one that I see often is the weapon of fear. And fear is smoke and screen, it, smoke and mirrors. It, is, it's, it really does begin to work on us. And the stronghold of fear, the Bible talks about in 1 John 4, 18, uh, that tormenting fear never comes from God. The Bible says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, for fear has done, has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The enemy will always try to motivate us in fear. Now remember, fear increases like faith increases. How do we increase faith in our life? The Bible says by hearing the word of God. So the Bible's very clear about that, that in order for us to grow, we've got to hear the word of God. This is why I'm like passionate about podcasts. I'm passionate about listening to preaching. I'm passionate about my, my, my audio Bible where I listen to the Bible when I go. And I'm, if I don't have time to read, I'm going to put it on. It's free. It's an app. It's on my phone. And, and somebody can read the word of God to me. And we go, why does it matter? Because what the word of God is, it's, we're not talking about, and this isn't to critique, but we're not talking about like an Oprah style word, although I love Oprah. We're not talking about good thoughts, like tell me something fresh and new. I've never thought about that. And that's awesome. That's not how the word of God works in our life. It's not a Kobe Collet, think good thoughts, and this is how it works. No, that's not how the Word of God works. This is very important. The reason we are in the Word of God is not, it's, it, and we receive the Word of God, the Bible says it does not return void, which means when we need it, we have access to it. Now, I'm Italian, which means I feed you because I love you. When I am in the grocery store, uh, and I go to Costco, and this is how big my family is. I now no longer have two carts. I have one of those, like, crates that I carry, right? That's what my life looks like. So when I go to Costco, I'm going to pick up extra supplies because people are always going to eat at my house. And what am I going to pick up when I have four boys? 
carbs, things that fill people up, spaghetti, potatoes, come on, right, rice, anything like that, and I save all the good food for me, and that's kind of what we do as moms, right? And so, so when I stock my pantry, I'm, I'm getting ready so that if we need it, we have it. I don't have time to teach all of this, but I will give you a very quick theological understanding of the word and the power of the word. In Ephesians, Paul said, put on the, put on the um, helmet of salvation and pick up the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In the Greek, word of God is translated two different ways. Anybody in this room, bilingual. You understand this. Oftentimes, you cannot translate something word for word. You have to give them an understanding of a philosophy or maybe a couple phrases for people to understand what you're saying. It's the same way with the Bible. The Bible is not translated word for word. Oftentimes, with the Greek or Hebrew, there is a concept behind it. There's something behind what is being said, and you have to go into the original meaning to understand the power behind it. So when Paul says, take up this helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the word of God is translated two different ways. The first way that it's translated often in the word is the word logos. Everybody say logos. Now logos means the entire written word of God. If I was to say, hey, will you hand me my Bible? I could say, will you hand me my logos? And that's my entire written word of God. Okay. There's even Bible softwares that are called logos. But that's not what Paul says, which is what we've often thought. When we fight the enemy, we got to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible. No, no, no. It actually says, pick up the rhema. Everybody say rhema. Rhema means this. Rhema means a quickened and specific word of the spirit. A quickened and specific word of the spirit. So he says, when you fight the devil, listen, listen, don't just pick up your whole Bible and try to fight him but take a quickened and specific word of the spirit and take care of him. So what does that mean? That means when you look at Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers would carry around large swords in their day and they would carry around. Have you guys ever seen like Roman soldiers where they would carry around those big, long, huge swords? They would carry that around for endurance and strength. But when it came to battle, theologians will tell you they were never taught to battle with large swords. They were taught to battle with small swords about the size of a dagger. And theologians would say that they were taught to never, ever go into battle cutting and slashing, but they were always taught to stab and to kill their opponent, and they believed that the sword only had to go in two inches to kill their opponent. Okay? So this is important. How many of you have ever seen the movie Gladiator? Don't admit that in church. What is wrong with you? I cannot believe you would admit that in church. You know, we see movies where these guys have the large swords and they're cutting and slashing and they're going into battle. They were taught never to do that. It, you, you lose your strength and energy too fast. This is important. When it comes to this passage in Ephesians where Paul's telling the church, this is how you fight the enemy, they would have in their time been thinking of soldiers and been thinking of battle and they would have known this truth. They would have known that he was saying, when you fight the enemy, don't just take that large sword for endurance and strength and try to find, find something. Have you ever hunted and pecked? God, give me a word to fight the enemy. He begat. Let's try it again, God. You get a second chance. Have you ever had a moment, right? When we are in our word, 
on a daily basis, whether it's audio, we're listening to it, we're listening to someone preach it, we're listening to it in our music, our singing theology or whatever it is, we have it in our life all the time and we don't really remember. We're like, oh, I listened to this, I heard this. It's going in our pantry, okay? It's being stored within our lives, our heart, our mind. But what the Bible says is that it doesn't return void, which means when you need it, you'll get it. Now, this is what scientists will tell you. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you can't remember something like a name? And you're like, oh, I know the name of this. And then you forget. And then like in the middle of the night, you wake up. Come on. You wake up and you're like, John, his name's John. You ever had that before, right? And then you think like, I wish I could call them right now. And they don't even care. But you're like, I want to tell them the fact because I just remembered it. The reason you do that is scientists will say that your brain, even though you move on from conversation and move on into other things, your brain will continue to look for that truth and will never stop looking for that truth. And when it comes and it finally actually appears where you get to, it's like a field of wheat. When you get to the place where that information is available, it'll bring it to you. No matter what time of day it is, no matter what you're doing, it'll bring the information. Well, that, isn't that interesting? Well, that's how the word of God operates. We are going through life and we're thinking and we're building, we're building and, and, I, and we're not just like thinking good thoughts and pulling good thoughts. And No, no, we're reading a living, active word of God and we're storing it up and we're storing it up and we're storing it up. And when we get into battle, we're not just trying to find something. We're not just trying to run to the store or, you know, oh, can you prophesy over me? I need a word to fight the enemy. Hey, can you pray over me? I need something. No, no, you have everything you need. And then when it's time, The Bible says that the Spirit of God will go within your pantry. He'll go within what you've reserved. He'll go within everything that you've saved up, stored up, listened to, sung, prayed, prophesied. And he'll take out what you need at that very moment to defeat the enemy. The reason many of us don't defeat the enemy is because we have nothing in our pantry. And so when the enemy comes knocking, we go calling. When we run to church, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm getting defeated. I feel like I'm getting picked on. I feel like there's flaming arrows coming my way. It's because your pantry is so flipping empty. Come on. That by the time the enemy comes, you have nothing. And so you want to go to somebody else and say, will you give me your weapon? What's your weapon? And God's like, I love you, but that's not you being a mature follower of Christ. That's you going, I'm actually not going to have anything prepared until the enemy comes. The, the Spirit of God wants to give you a rhema word that when the enemy comes knocking, you are ready. We spend too much time fighting the enemy when we should be dealing with him. And when we deal with him, we should, it shouldn't be our main focus. It should be dealing so we can get on with living. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life. All we do is focus on stealing, killing, and destroying, and we should be focusing on life. God gave us an ability to fight the enemy and keep him under our feet quickly so we can get on with living because there's a whole life to be lived. You shouldn't be fighting all the time. You shouldn't be struggling all the time. You shouldn't be like, I just, I haven't had victory since 1986. How exhausting. I don't want to live that life. I want to live the abundant life that he came to give me because the moment I receive Christ is the moment my eternal life begins. Listen, this is important. When you die, it's not when eternity begins. You've already begun your eternal life. 
It will be a whisper. You will transition. Yes, you will transition from one earthly moment to a heavenly moment, but your eternal life has already begun, and everything you've received here will continue. There'll be no fear. There'll be no weirdness. You won't go, what happened? No, it'll feel like home. It'll feel natural because you've already been sowing, and the Bible says when you enter into eternity, how you lived on this earth will be rewarded, and what you did on earth, the Bible says he will hand out rewards for how you lived. I'm all about rewards. I remember when I first got married, I would tell my husband, let's clean the house, and then if we clean the house like five times, I can get a pedicure. He's like, why would you do things for reward? I'm like, is there any other way? So I'm ending on this thought, but first is fear. You've got to deal with fear. A spirit of fear that wants to suck the life out of you. Some of you, the hard things you're dealing with right now, you're, you're trying to talk yourself out of fear. You need to, you need to shut fear up. I remember early on, um, after I had gotten, uh, began to follow Christ, I was telling a pastor about my experience at a conference in L.A., and as I was telling him this, he said, I'm, he got very excited about it, and he said, I want you to get up tonight, and I want you to share in front of the room, what God has done in your life. And I thought, oh, I'll, of course, that'd be great. And then after I said yes, I walked to and I realized, oh my gosh, I've got to get up in front of 6,000 people after worship and share my story. And I, had, I took a zero in class in front of 30 students. I've never been up in front of anybody. And I began to panic. And as the afternoon went on, I kind of was in denial. And then as I went in for worship, I began to panic. I remember leaving the room, running around the building in L.A. at this auditorium. The, the place is going ballistic. 6,000 people are worshiping. And I'm in behind the building having a panic attack. I'm bent over. I'm doing, <laughs> there's no way I can do this. I am like panicked. My parents happen to be at this, at this event. My dad comes walking around the building to find me he says, Havla, what's going on? And I'm, I can't do this. There's no way I can get up in front of anybody. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he, I remember him saying something that has forever changed my life, marked my life. He grabbed me by the shoulders, and he looked at me in the eye, and he said, Havla, if you don't look at fear as your enemy, it will defeat you one day. If you don't look at fear as your enemy, it will defeat you. And I remember making a decision at that moment. I am not going to bow down to fear right now. I will not. And you know, I've had, to, I've had to overcome a lot of fear in my life, a lot of anxiety in my life. And we don't have, I will talk about this more today, but I understand that. But I have to ask myself every time, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to raise four kids, four boys in a sexualized culture? How am I going to, come on, how am I going to go here? And how am I going to, stop, stop, fear, knock it off, no. I will not fear. I say that out loud most days. I will be driving in my car and I will say, I will not fear. I will not fear. I will not fear. We had one of our little guys, our eldest son, used to be terrified of washing his hair. And he would go, it would, he would go ballistic. We'd wash his hair with soap and he would cry. He'd be so terrified it was going to go into his face that it began to be such a dramatic moment in our family that we would like avoid bathing him. Do you know what I'm saying? And so finally, it'd be like, no, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. And, and finally, I, we, Ben and I had this moment where we said, we have got to stop this. This, this is dominating our entire night. His fear is it's controlling him, and this is going to grow. This is going to be his legacy if we don't help him. 
And so we came up with a plan. We said, now we're going we're gonna to show him that every time he gets his hair washed, he can yell, I will not fear. And so we sat him down, this little four-year-old. We said, every time you want to fear, I want you to shout out, I will not fear. And I don't care if you scream it at mommy and daddy, I, we want you to say it. So the first night we go to wash his hair and he's, I will not fear, I will not fear. And he's, you know, crying, screaming. And eventually, I will not fear. We would say, Judah, yell it, scream it, I will not fear. And he would start to say it and we would wash his hair. And then the next night we'd do it over and the next night we'd do it over. And eventually all fear was broken off. He never had an issue. You have to have a plan for fear. You can't avoid fear. You can't ignore fear. You have to have a plan for fear. When fear comes knocking, you have to have a plan. And often in my life, I will say, I will not fear, enemy. I will not fear. I trust God. God is my leader. His perfect, his leadership is perfect in my life. God's got it under control. I don't have to have it all figured out. I have a God who knows how it's figured out. I will not fear. I trust God. I trust God. I'm a woman of faith. I'm a woman of faith. I'm going to live a life of faith. I'm called to do this. And you begin to declare those things. You go, well, I'm kind of shy. I don't think there's nowhere in the Bible that says if you're shy, you don't have to fight fear. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of passive. Uh, It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible does it say, if you're passive, don't worry about it. The devil doesn't care what personality we have. He's a thief and a destroyer, and he will come after all of us. And don't you think it's easier for anybody else? Fear comes in all different ways. And everybody deals with fear, no matter how confident someone looks. Don't even believe that lie that somebody has it easier than you, and somehow you're the only one. No, no, no. You may have given it more power, but fear comes knocking on everybody's door. So you need a plan. Lastly is this, and I've taken so much time. Is it 11? No, okay, my, my phone. Thank, it's 1220? That clock is, du- is off an hour. Sorry. I'm like, it's 1120. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Okay. No, thank you. Okay, I'm going to finish with this thought. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I was like, this time is never changing. I keep looking. And at my thing, my, my clock says 1220. Forgive me, you guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I have to go to the bathroom, and I already had to go to the bathroom. So I was like, so we've been going for a while. I was getting tired of myself preaching. Um, I would say this. The, the, the other one that we have to deal with is unbelief. So we have to just look at those two areas. Am I dealing with fear or am I dealing with unbelief? And you have to go after either of those. And oftentimes, both of those weapons are coming at us. Either or, we have to look at that. And unbelief, the Bible says, you don't have to have perfect faith, but you can say. There was a man in the Bible that said, well, then I'm dealing with unbelief. Well, then God help my unbelief. So don't be embarrassed that you lack faith for where you're going. Tell God, God, then help my unbelief. Show me a way out. Show me a way out. Now, our next session, we're going to take time. I'm going to talk about the thing that has been the most impacting in my life, and I'm going to show you it's going to be interactive, and I think you're going to enjoy our next session so much more. I'm going to talk about once we begin to hope, how we start to build our life forward in the hard things, and we're going to talk about um, something that, cost me thousands of dollars to learn. I'm going to give it to you. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today. I'm sorry for going over, God. No, I'm kidding. Um, thanks for not telling me. No. Um, I just pray everyone would have a beautiful lunch. And uh, for those people that are, the ones that are trying to figure out hope and forgiveness, would you show them, like even as we go in throughout the day, would you show them what needs to happen in their life? 
I thank you for each of them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen.